This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meredith Hughes, Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 6, Part C. The Two-Leaved Pine. The two-leaved pine, Pinus contorta, variety Murayana, above the silver fir zone, forms the bulk of the alpine forests up to a height of from 8,000 to 9,500 feet above the sea, growing in beautiful order on moraines scarcely changed as yet by post-glacial weathering. Compared with the giants of the lower regions, this is a small tree, seldom exceeding a height of 80 or 90 feet. The largest I ever measured was ninety feet high, and a little over six feet in diameter. The average height of mature trees throughout the entire belt is probably not far from fifty or sixty feet with a diameter of two feet. It is a well-proportioned, rather handsome tree, with grayish-brown bark and crooked, much-divided branches which cover the greater part of the trunk, but not so densely as to prevent it being seen. The lower limbs, like those of most other conifers that grow in snowy regions, curve downward, gradually take a horizontal position about halfway up the trunk, then aspire more and more toward the summit. The short, rigid needles and fascicles of two are arranged in comparatively long cylindrical tassels at the ends of the tough, up-curving branches. The cones are about two inches long, growing in clusters among the needles, without any striking effect except while very young, when the flowers are of a vivid crimson color, and the whole tree appears to be dotted with brilliant flowers. The staminate flowers are still more showy on account of their great abundance, often giving a reddish-yellow tinge to the whole mass of foliage, and filling the air with pollen. No other pine on the range is so regularly planted as this one, covering moraines that extend along the sides of the high rocky valleys for miles without interruption. The thin bark is streaked and sprinkled with resin, as though it had been showered upon the forest like rain. Therefore this tree more than any other is subject to destruction by fire. During strong winds extensive forests are destroyed, the flames leaping from tree to tree in continuous belts that go surging and racing onward above the bending wood like prairie grass fires. During the calm season of Indian summer the fire creeps quietly along the ground, feeding on needles and cones. Arriving at the foot of a tree, the resiny bark is ignited and the heated air ascends in a swift current, increasing in velocity and dragging the flames upward. Then the leaves catch, forming an immense column of fire, beautifully spired on the edges and tinted a rose-purple hue. It rushes aloft thirty or forty feet above the top of the tree, forming a grand spectacle, especially at night. It lasts, however, only a few seconds, vanishing with magical rapidity, to be succeeded by others along the fire-line at irregular intervals, tree after tree, up-flashing and darting, leaving the trunks and branches scarcely scarred. The heat, however, is sufficient to kill the tree, and in a few years the bark shrivels and falls off. Forests miles in extent are thus killed and left standing, with the branches on, but peeled and rigid, appearing grey in the distance like misty clouds. Later the branches drop off, leaving a forest of bleached spars. 
At length the roots decay, and the forlorn grey trunks are blown down during some storm, and piled one upon another, encumbering the ground until, dry and seasoned, they are consumed by another fire, and leave the ground ready for a fresh crop. In sheltered lake hollows, on beds of alluvium, this pine varies so far from the common form that frequently it could be taken for a distinct species, growing in damp sods like grasses from forty to eighty feet high, bending all together to the breeze and whirling in eddying gusts more lively than any other tree in the woods. I frequently found specimens fifty feet high less than five inches in diameter. Being so slender, and at the same time clad with leafy boughs, it is often bent and weighed down to the ground when laden with soft snow, thus forming fine ornamental arches, many of them to last until the melting of the snow in the spring. THE MOUNTAIN PINE The mountain pine, Pinus monticola, is the noblest tree of the alpine zone, hardy and long-lived, towering grandly above its companions, and becoming stronger and more imposing, just where other species begin to crouch and disappear. At its best it is usually about ninety feet high, and five or six feet in diameter, though you may find specimens here and there considerably larger than this. It is as massive and suggestive of enduring strength as an oak. About two-thirds of the trunk is commonly free of limbs, but close, fringy tufts of spray occur nearly all the way down to the ground. On trees that occupy exposed situations near its upper limit, the bark is deep reddish-brown and rather deeply furrowed, the main furrows running nearly parallel to each other and connected on the old trees by conspicuous cross-furrows. The cones are from four to eight inches long, smooth, slender, cylindrical, and somewhat curved. They grow in clusters of from three to six or seven, and become pendulous as they increase in weight. This species is nearly related to the sugar pine, and, though not half so tall, it suggests its noble relative in the way that it extends its long branches in general habit. It is first met on the upper margin of the silver fir zone, singly in what appears as chance situations, without making much impression on the general forest. Continuing up through the forests of the two-leaved pine, it begins to show its distinguishing characteristic in the most marked way at an elevation of about ten thousand feet extending its tough, rather slender arms in the frosty air, welcoming the storms and feeding on them and reaching sometimes to the grand old age of a thousand years. THE WESTERN JUNIPER the juniper, or red cedar, Juniperus occidentalis, is preeminently a rock tree, occupying the baldest domes and pavements in the upper silver fir and alpine zones, at a height of from 7,000 to 9,500 feet. In such situations, rooted in narrow cracks or fissures, where there is scarcely a handful of soil, it is frequently over eight feet in diameter, and not much more in height. The tops of old trees are almost always dead, and large, stubborn-looking limbs push out horizontally, most of them broken and dead at the end, but densely covered, and embedded here and there with tufts or mounds of grey-green scale-like foliage. Some trees are mere storm-beaten stumps, about as broad as long, decorated with a few leafy sprays, reminding one of the crumbling towers of old castles scantily draped with ivy. Its homes on bare, barren dome and ridge top seem to have been chosen for safety against fire, 
for, on isolated mounds of sand and gravel free from grass and bushes on which fire could feed, it is often found growing tall and unscathed, to a height of forty to sixty feet, with scarce a trace of the rocky angularity and broken limbs so characteristic a feature throughout the greater part of its range. It never makes anything like a forest, seldom even a grove. Usually it stands out separate and independent, clinging by slight joints to the rocks, living chiefly on snow and thin air, and maintaining sound health on this diet for two thousand years or more. Every feature or every gesture it makes expresses steadfast, dogged endurance. The bark is of a bright cinnamon color, and is handsomely braided and reticulated on thrifty trees, flaking off in thin, shining ribbons that are sometimes used by the Indians for tent matting. Its fine color and picturesqueness are appreciated by artists, but to me the juniper seems a singularly strange and taciturn tree. I have spent many a day and night in its company, and have always found it silent and rigid. It seems to be a survivor of some ancient race, wholly unacquainted with its neighbors. Its broad stumpiness, of course, makes wind-waving or even shaking out of the question, but it is not this rocky rigidity that constitutes its silence. In calm Sundays the sugar-pine preaches like an enthusiastic apostle without moving a leaf. On level rocks the juniper dies standing, and wastes insensibly out of existence like granite, the wind exerting about as little control over it, alive or dead, as it does over a glacier boulder. I have spent a good deal of time trying to determine the age of these wonderful trees, but as all of the very old ones are honeycombed with dry rot, I never was able to get a complete count of the largest. Some are undoubtedly more than two thousand years old, for though on deep moraine soil they grow about as fast as some of the pines, on bare pavements and smoothly glaciated overswept ridges in the dome region they grow very slowly. One on the Star King Ridge, only two feet eleven inches in diameter, was one thousand one hundred forty years old forty years ago. Another on the same ridge, only one foot seven and a half inches in diameter, had reached the age of eight hundred thirty-four years. The first fifteen inches from the bark of a medium-sized tree six feet in diameter on the North Tanaya pavement had eight hundred fifty-nine layers of wood. Beyond this the count was stopped by dry rot and scars. The largest examined was thirty-three feet in girth, or nearly ten feet in diameter, and, although I have failed to get anything like a complete count, I learned enough from this and many other specimens to convince me that most of the trees eight or ten feet thick, standing on pavements, are more than twenty centuries old rather than less. Barring accidents, for all I can see, they would live forever. Even then, overthrown by avalanches, they refuse to lie at rest, lean stubbornly on their big branches as if anxious to rise, and while a single root holds to the rock, put forth fresh leaves with a grim never-say-die expression. End of chapter 6, part C